First Timothy chapter 3. For those of you that weren't here this morning, we were talking about when the Christian books are audited, about the judgment seat of Christ, and the rewards that the Lord has prepared for those who serve Him faithfully while they're here on earth. We will be rewarded as sons and servants. This morning we got up through no striker. Got to that. That's right. Just got through not given to wine. And I hope nobody had to change their diet for lunch. But uh, we want to go now to the next point. Uh, let me read that. Uh, so this is a true saying, First uh, Timothy 3.1. If a man desire the office of a bishop or oversight, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine. Now that we covered all those this morning. Now we want to go on to the next ones here, where it says no striker. Now it's interesting how several of these overlap. Several of these different phrases overlap in their context of uh, behavior. We talked about moral character is what Paul says is required if one is going to be in leadership. And that word no striker means not the fighting kind. One who never fights. He's not quick-tempered. He doesn't go around with a chip on his shoulder. And I've told you before, if you find someone with a chip on their shoulder, it's only evidence that there's wood higher up. The, a preacher, a pastor, or an evangelist is not to go around with a chip on his shoulder, but he's to have a quiet and a gentle spirit. Now, I want to tell you something. Before I became a Christian, you would not have wanted to know me because if I was known for anything at all, it was, I was known for a violent temper. Very much anger inside of me, having been... Uh, beaten up and beaten up and beaten up when I was smaller. I vowed I was going to get even with all of them and I went to work as hard as I could to build myself up so I could get even. And I went around, I was like an accident wait, looking for a place to happen. Waiting to find somebody. And God had to deal with that with me on that. Uh, of course, I'm not, I, I thank God that uh, there's, there's been people said, don't you ever get angry anymore. Yes, once in a while I do. Someone said the other day, the only time they ever saw me get angry was one time when I was ministering in deliverance here. And one spirit told me it wasn't going to come out. And he said, they never seemed to get so, my face gets so red. And I said, I beg your pardon, you will come out in Jesus' name. And it did come out. But that's called righteous indignation. That's not anger. When you rise up against the power of darkness that tries to deny that we have the authority in Jesus Christ. But I have known of pastors, I've read of pastors in recent years who have had knocked down drag outs and actually punched people in their congregation. And uh, now I can understand how in the flesh that can happen. There are a lot of people where you, the tendency in the natural is to say, God, don't worry about this and I'll take care of this in myself. And uh, they let the flesh go and they do what they feel like they ought to want to do. But one of the things that I, I appreciate so much when I was in the Alliance School, they talked about dying out the self, what they call sanctification. And someone gave an illustration one time that when we got to heaven and walked around heaven, that they thought that when they saw Joshua, they'd see a man with medals hanging all the way down to the floor because of all the battles he had won and all the victories he had accomplished. And then they said, you know, I suddenly realized that, that I'd have to look for Joshua. He would probably be kind of slinking around heaven with just plain garb on, and you'd have to ask where he was because when you come up to him, you could say, what's your name? And he'd say, Joshua. Oh, Josh, not, not Joshua, the son of none. Yeah, yes, I am. Joshua, tell me about the wonderful battles you won. And he would have to come back and say, I didn't win any battles. 
I didn't even fight any battle. The Lord fought all the battles for me. All I had to do was obey his word and he fought the battles for me. And emphasize the fact that you and I don't have to fight. All we have to do is yield to the Lord. Remember when the men came against Moses, he fell flat on his face before God and God was standing behind him. Suddenly Moses wasn't in front of him and they could see the presence of God there and they began to tremble all over. And when you come into spiritual leadership, you have to learn that God will fight your battles for you. You don't have to fight them at all. You don't have to argue. You just simply have to say what you believe God tells you to say and let it go there. Now let me tell you something. I have lived long enough to know that when I tell somebody that I feel this is what God says, something doesn't usually happen overnight. But I'll guarantee you, I've lived long enough to find out sooner or later, chickens come home to roost. You sow to the flesh, it will come back on you, and it's terrible to see what happens. See, if the devil allowed it, I mean, if, if it happened overnight, people say, whoa, I've got to get back, and the devil knows that. So he takes his time and lets you get far enough away so there's no connection between what you did here and what happened over there, so that you can't be made alert. He literally lets you go to sleep. But let me tell you something. When the pastor comes to you and says, this is what I believe God is telling me in my spirit that needs to be done about this, Please don't ignore it because he doesn't want to say that. I, I had someone just remind me today that some time ago I was walking out the door here and got out front. And you know, there's nothing more humbling to me than when God tells me to do something and I don't have the least idea why I'm doing it, but I just try to be obedient. And I had to go up to them and say, brother, I don't know what's going on, but God just told me whatever you're doing, stop it and don't move. Don't move. And I turned around and walked away and I... But I don't know why I had to say that, but I had to say it. They came back later and said, oh boy, we were all ready to you know, move to another part of the country and we'd been quietly going and checking this out and checking that out. And you know, I, I thought, God, you're so wonderful. I mean, <laughs> I had no idea why you had me say it. And I could have said, well, Lord, I don't understand what I was supposed to, why I was supposed to say that and not said it. But the longer you're in the, walking with the Lord, the more you realize you don't have to understand it. You just have to say, yes, Lord, what's the question, what's the command? Tell me what you want me to do now. Yes, Lord, whatever it is, yes, I'll do it. And you don't have to fight your battles. So one that's in leadership is not a fighter, not a striker, not one that wants to get on with it with his fists. The next thing is not greedy of filthy lucre. Now let me say again, pastors are not hired. Hirelings are hired. Pastors are not hired. Pastors are supported. God calls men into a ministry and calls men and women to support that ministry. Now let me tell you the difference. If your pastor is hired, you can fire him. You tell him when to get up and when to go to bed and when to make this call and when to make that call. I had a church in Minnesota years ago come over, send some men over and say, we want you to become pastor of our church. It was a fast growing church. And I said, well, talk to me about it. I, I really don't think that I'm interested, but I'll be glad to talk to you about it. And they said, well, and they started going down the line. We want you to be in the office at 8 o'clock in the morning. We want you to study until 11 o'clock in council. And then at noon, you can have a break. And they went, they had my schedule all the way through the whole day, clear into the evening every day of the week. And uh, I said, that's what you're expecting of your pastor. And they said, yes. I said, well, uh, will you get upset if the Lord awakens me at 2 in the morning and has me go to prayer without having that on your schedule? What do you mean? I said, well, you know, I, I have never in all my life had anyone tell me when to get up and when to go to bed. I have the Lord do that for me. And I've never had to have anybody push me because usually I'm up before most people would have me get up anyway. And I usually go to bed later than some people do, but I many times get up in the middle of the night and pray and read the Word and study 
and so forth, but that's not in your schedule there. I said, you know, you really don't need a pastor. You need to hire a clerk in your office and call them a pastor and let them be your secretary and do the things you want them to do. You see, because you may tell me I should make 35 calls a week, but one week God tells me I'm supposed to go over and witness to one person and minister to one family all week. Now, how in the world am I going to do that if I've got 30 calls and I'm supposed to make that week? And there have been times when I was supposed to call over here and God says, don't call there, but go over here. Now, how am I going to fit that in if you're going to set my schedule up so rigidly? You see, what you're trying to do is hire a preacher instead of call a pastor to come and minister to you and, and bring the ministry that God's given him to your, into your building. Do you see the difference? If you can hire a pastor, you can fire a pastor. But if you have a man that's called of God and you fire him, God won't send you another good one. That's why I keep saying, know who your pastor is. If he's not your pastor, find your pastor. Pastor and evangelist should be supported. There's some people who literally think that the, the poorer they can keep their pastor, the more spiritual he is. Now you know this constantly, and I didn't look them all up, but there's verse after verse after verse constantly warning leaders, Christian leaders, to be careful of not craving or coveting money. If they don't have money, how can they covet it? I mean, why would they want to covet something that they don't have? You see, many times you can get a lot of money and you begin to want more and more and more and keep hanging on to it. And Paul constantly warned them not to let that happen. But it wasn't the case that they were going to be starved to death. I've known of people who have said they just loved one pastor and his wife because they had never known of anyone who could get along with so little in their whole life. And that was their attitude. Look with me at 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter. 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter, and verse 17. Let the elders or bishops or overseers that rule well be counted worthy of what? Double honor, and that word in the Greek is honorarium. Honorarium. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. When a person is in the ministry, called the ministry, their ministry is supported, but they must never allow that to support, to control them. They must be controlled by the Spirit of God. They must do what God tells them to do. They must not be money lovers. In fact, Jesus said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And they must not be stingy. Now, many pastors don't get a whole lot, but most pastors, you'll find out that they'll return a lot of what they get back into the Lord's work. Why? Because they've learned the principle of sowing and reaping. But if people try to squeeze them down to where they can't do that, then God will have to supply the source resources from other areas if they're called of God and God is their source. But 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, is a powerful verse for, those, for any Christian. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, beginning with the sixth verse. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now there's another place in there where it says, not only enough for yourself, but plenty to give to others' needs. God does not want only to give to us what our needs require. He wants to be able to give to us enough to give to other people's needs. 
Now he said here that that's going to be judged and measured by, by the measure with which we give. You give and it shall be given unto you. As you give to others, God challenges them and they give to others and they give to others and they give to others. And God's economy is just continuously circulating that way. When somebody is a, is a taker and becomes stingy and all the money comes in, they become a reservoir instead of a conduit, God has to cut them off. But he said, when you and I flow in that economy of God, that he is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. That's why if a man is called of God, no one can restrict him. God will raise up someone else to support him. And down through the years of my ministry, it's been the most interesting thing, how it just looks like there's a wall ahead of us. And I say, Lord, I thank you there's a miracle coming. And someone will walk into my life that I did not expect at all. And while they're in my life, they'll say, God just spoke to me and said I'm supposed to do thus and such. And they walk out of my life and I never see them again. And they make provisions in ways that I never even thought of could possibly be made. Now why? That's so that the church, that a body of people cannot control one who's called of God, the pastor. They can only support that ministry. And you must believe in that ministry or you shouldn't support it. Not greedy of filthy lucre. We're going to get into this more and more later on about the attitude of the pastor as far as finances are concerned. We realize that he's just a steward of God. And until you and I understand what a steward is, we can never come into freedom in our finances. The next word is patient. Another translation is gentle. It means a person of mild and kind demeanor. I've known some pastors who could be extremely harsh and sharp and demanding. I've seen pastors who have beaten sheep. I know of one man that attended college when I attended college, very brilliant man. In fact, he used to help me with my theology classes and teach me things that I could not comprehend as a new Christian. He used to work with me patiently. But he could not keep a congregation, and that's because they said that when he'd get in the pulpit, the poor sheep would just walk out with lashes all over their back. He would just beat them to death. Just give them a whipping. And he would go from church to church, and he came out of the church saying, I just don't know why I cannot make a church grow. But he would just be so harsh with the people. God's Word says that if we're to be a pastor or be in leadership, we have to be gentle and patient with people. You know, there are a lot of times it would be easy to say to someone, why don't you shut up and straighten up? But you see, that's not my prerogative. That's not my position. I have no right to say that. All I have a right to say is this is what the Word says. And this is the way the Word of God says you should do it. Now do what you will. Because a person is in leadership does not mean that they're the Lord and Master. It means that they're the servant of all. And uh, they really believe, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We don't have to fight. We don't have to resist. Just give in to the Lord. Then again, he gets right back in the same area again, not a brawler. The Greek actually says not disposed to fighting. His tendency is not to fight. Uh, not contentious, not apt to take a quarrel. And here again, rather, his attitude is one of gentleness as a pastor. I want to tell you something. I know some pastors that literally go looking for trouble. They called me and said, I looked in the paper and such and such is going to be happening here. Let's go demonstrate. I said, why would you want to go demonstrate? They need to know what I believe. And I said, you know, I won't run from a fight, but I won't go looking for one either. If God wants me to be involved, he'll open the door and show me that I'm supposed to get involved in that situation. So we're not, a, not to be a brawler when we're in leadership. If you know of a pastor that's out there constantly fighting everything that comes along, uh, be very careful. Because they're going to sooner or later get 
not if they don't get in trouble, then we'll get some of the people into trouble. And the next one is what? Not covetous. Now again, not greedy or filthy lucre. We come right back to covetousness. Not loving silver. But here, covetousness, lover of silver, lover of money is what it means in the Greek. And the reason for that is the love of money is the root of all evil. Show me a pastor who concentrates on finances, concentrates on how to raise money. And let me tell you something, that's where our TV evangelists have created a lot of problems for many pastors today. They're constantly out there reaching for the buck. And they found some of them that, that set up fake mission things over in the fields where they take a picture of a house and take a picture of a bunch of little kids standing out in the street and say, these are our orphans and send all this money and we're going to be supporting those ministries and found out they weren't supporting them. One owning gimmick after another trying to get it taken care of. Uh, we're building a house in uh, a church in Russia or over in the Ukraine and uh, we need all the money and hundreds of thousands of dollars come in for it. And uh, maybe uh, $40,000 was given to it or $10,000 was given. Incredible. But you see, they had that machine moving. Now, this big machine that's moved. They have to keep greasy oiling that, that machine, getting more money and more money to make the machine bigger and better. And so we think of more gimmicks to do it. God says that's not His way. If you have a love for money and are covetous, it'll destroy any other, uh, or null, I should say, any other qualifications that you may have. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And money and possessions can be possessed by you, but you must not be possessed by them. We must hold them with our hands open and say, Lord, I'm only holding them as your steward. What would you have me to do with them? Let me tell you something. There are some men that God has wonderfully blessed in the ministry in financial ways. But the minute they start saying, this is mine and I will do with it what I want to do, then they're in trouble. They're violating the very principle we're talking about here. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful. And by the way, Titus, the first chapter is interesting to look at. and talks about uh, it required of a steward that he be found faithful. And by the way, any, anyone who is called into a ministry or a work for Jesus Christ is a steward. Any born-again Christian is a steward with the talents and gifts that God has given him. But it says here in Titus 1.7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. The very same things just talking about here again. A bishop must be blameless and be as the steward of God. A moral reputation and a steward with the things that God's put in his life. Then the next one. One that ruleth well his own house. That word ruleth is superintendent. In other words, one who has authority, a superintendent, one who oversees his own house. It suggests to rule or to be the head of, according to the Greek scholars. It, the word ruleth there means to rule or to be the head of. Now, when one is in called of God to rule, he's to rule, first of all, like what one of them said, it's gentleness clothed with firmness and firmness clothed with gentleness. Gentleness clothed with firmness and firmness clothed with gentleness. Not severe, not stern. And anytime you are in a place of leadership or responsibility, the first thing you must realize is not that you're to take authority, but that you are authority, if God's put you in authority. And if you're in authority, you don't need to scream, you don't need to rave, you don't need to rant, you don't need to threaten, you don't need to intimidate. You simply speak what you know is right, and then the rest lies with the recipient. If you're in leadership, 
The Lord wants you to be sober and serious-minded, not some screaming maniac. You will do what I tell you to do, so help me, you will. And rather, you say what you mean, and you mean what you say, and you don't move. I think one of the greatest problems that many people in, in authority have is they say what they mean and mean what they say, but they don't follow through it. How many times have you had parents, heard parents say, I want you to sit right there, stay right there, stay, stay right there, and they walk away, and you watch within one minute or 30 seconds, the kid is up and going again. I want you to sit right there, now don't get up, stay right there. You watch, you don't get, they don't get four steps away, they're gone again. And it happens over and over and over and over again. That child is already learning that they've got you whipped. Why? You don't mean what you say. You may think you mean what you say, but you don't follow through. The minute you say, do this, and they don't do it, then you must deal with disobedience. How do you deal with disobedience? Now, I told you, don't do that again. I told you, you know what's going to happen if you do that again. And you do it again. So help me if you do it. Don't you ever do that again. And you do it again. What are they doing? I don't believe you. I really don't believe you. You don't really have authority. Why? Because you say things and you don't mean it. If I say sit right there, if that seat isn't, doesn't stay warm, then theirs will. No, right there. And I didn't say there. I said, have you ever watched a child and you come to sit right there? Right there, sit right there. No, no, right there. You know what they're doing? You don't mean it. You really don't mean it. If we talk about being in leadership, we say what we mean, we mean what we say. If you said sit right there, they don't move in one inch in either direction. You mean right there. Now, if you say you can sit anywhere here on the bench, I've literally seen from time to time children being told, sit right here, put down the one, all the way back, back and forth. They're having a ball. They didn't get corrected. They just found a new area of release. Now, that, that, all that's saying is, please understand, all that's saying is, you don't mean what you say. And you don't have to scream at all. Once they know you mean what you say, and you say what you mean, and you follow through. Every time. Now, let me tell you something. You think that's minor detail? In the church, when I make a rule, and say, this is what I believe the church should do. If I break it, and I don't mean it, then I'm in trouble too. Let me tell you, I get caught. You said! Well, no, you said! I'll be very, very careful. Now, let's get on. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, the first thing I want you to know, when he's talking about leadership, he didn't say having her children. He's having his children and also Justin. He's talking about a pastor, evangelist, apostle, pastor, evangelist, prophet, teacher, one who's in an office ministry. Listen to me. If you're coming into, want to come into spiritual leadership, realize, Dad, you are responsible for your children. Not mom. You delegate responsibilities to mom, but you're ultimately responsible. When God talks about your children, he's going to talk to you about your children. He's going to ask you, where are your children? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? What did, did I tell you you're supposed to do with your children? But my wife won't let me. You are authority. Just simply say it. And if she doesn't, then leave her with God. Turn her over to God. Now, you know what the problem is today? There's no fear of God in most people's hearts. 
But if a man will walk with God in obedience, his word, and the wife will not obey him, turn her over to the Lord. You say, Lord, I love her, and I, I just yield her to you completely. You deal with her. And I want to tell you something. I've been in the hospitals down through the years where that's had to be, that's happened. The only thing is, I haven't seen much of it lately. I don't know if it's because the men are not really serious about walking right with God so that God does hear their prayer suddenly. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know this much. God's wheels grind slowly, but they grind finally. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. Another one says, showing, children showing respect. Another living Bible says, children who obey quickly and quietly. He said, if that's not true, then you're incompetent as far as the office of the bishop, elder, pastor, teacher is concerned. Uh, you know I could slobber your bibble on this one. I can tell you all kinds of things about this. But God holds us responsible for seeing to it that our children know that we mean what we say, we say what we mean, and we follow through. Why? Because we want them to learn how to do the same thing when their children grow up. If you don't teach them biblical principles very clearly so that they will follow, and by the way, they follow by precept as well as concept. They watch what you do as much as what you say. And when you miss it, you got to go to them and say, I missed it. Will you please forgive me? I really missed it here. But that does not delete my authority. I still have an authority, but I'm still in the authority as far as God is concerned. And I've asked him for forgiveness. I've asked you for forgiveness. Now let's get back to this, what we're doing. You deal with your children to where it's the principle is established in their heart so that when they grow up, they have children, they won't have to worry about knowing whether when they tell their children to sit here, it means there and here and there and back and forth and all over the place. If you tell your children you're not supposed to be up here on the platform, you tell them once, why do you have to tell them the third, fourth, fifth, oh, they forget? No, 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 let me assure you. They don't forget. They'll look at you like dumb, uh, they know exactly why you come to them again. They just don't believe you mean it. At home. I've actually had people say, here, let me take all that stuff and put it up here. Oh, here, let's just, oh no, God love their heart. I said, no, 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 leave it there. Well, yes, but I don't want to just, no, leave it there. What? I'll deal with it. I'll agree. A lot of parents really won't agree. They won't leave it down. Because the parents are saying, now, honey, don't touch that. And they'll walk away. And the kids will go, and you've got it. But if at home you say that, no, you don't touch that, don't get in that cabinet, honey. Now, if you get in the cabinet, daddy will have to deal with you. If you'll do it when they're way down here, you don't have to scream at them when they're way up here. Way down here. If I say no, I mean no every single time. I punish my children betimes when they're little to teach them these things. Some people say, are you telling your children perfect? Good night. No, they weren't perfect. But I got them young enough so that they started listening to me when they got a little older. And I said, no, they knew I meant no. If I went like this, that was it. What? You're not going to teach them when they get up here. Train up a little tiny child. And when he's... Getting older, he'll not depart from what you taught him down there. It's required for someone that's going to be a bishop. And there's time when pastors have to, or husbands have to go home and fathers and say, children, we missed it. And here's where we missed it. But by the grace of God, before you get out of this house, I want you to understand biblical principles. By the grace of God, I want you to work with me now. When I say something, from now on, I mean it. And there will be consequences. Why? So that when you get in your home, you'll understand the responsibility of a father. You'll understand that when you say no, you'll mean no. 
Now, he brings a conclusion as to why he said this. One that ruleth well his own house, having his own children in subjection with all gravity. Why all this is important? For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? Or the ecclesia? Or the called out ones? Hmm, what a comparison. Are you telling me that a father, who is the authority in the home, that authority relationship carries over into the church somehow? Well, if he doesn't know how to do it at home, he sure can't do what he's supposed to do in the church. Why? God never gives responsibility without authority. Read all the way through the Bible. Every man he called, not only gave him responsibility, gave him authority. It's interesting how Paul compared himself or related himself to the church. 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, and verse 15. Verse 14 and 15. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons... I warn you, for though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. I'm your father, you're my son. Well, why would he use that kind of a relationship? That kind of an illustration. I have spiritual authority with you. I'm your father, you're my son. Now let's go to the next part, over in Galatians, the fourth chapter. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now he's the mother. I travail in birth until I know that you're going to be all right. I, I just am, it's like I'm in birth pains. I'm your father. I'm your mother. Why? Because if you can't run the house with authority like you ought to, you can't run the church because you're going to have a father and a mother relationship to your children. These, every young person in this church is just like my own child. When I work with these young people, I love them like I'd love my own child. I feel that I'm trying to pour something that's in me into them so that in the days ahead they'll go out and they'll be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that they ought to do it before the Lord. It's not a case of, well, preacher, that's you're hired to be good and that's what you're doing while you're doing what you're doing. Paul said, I'm a father and I'm a mother. You see, being a good father in a home qualifies you for the other position. One qualifies for the other. Then the next one he says, not a novice, and I'll, I'll quit after this one, not a novice. In other words, not a new convert, not a newly planted person. Whenever God calls someone into any type of work, there has to be a time of period of development, and it must precede a period of manifestation. When Christ called Moses, he first of all spent 40 years on the back side of the desert. Get him ready to bring him into the land of Egypt. He had to learn all the things he had, all the things he gave himself confidence in Egypt. He had to learn leading a bunch of dumb sheep around for 40 years. Joshua was called of God, but he had to follow Moses for many, many years. God called Elisha to follow Elijah for very many years. I could go on and on and on how God called Paul and had Timothy follow him. But even when he called Paul, he called Paul out into the desert for three years and took him to the Holy Ghost Bible School for three years and taught him everything he was supposed to know about the gospel. And then when Paul came in later and met with the apostles, he said, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. Everything I needed to know, I'd already received from the Holy Spirit in the desert. There's always got to be a time of development. God called me in the ministry. First of all, there were five years of training and, and experience while I was in Bible college. I went out of St. Paul Bible College into a, uh, an assistant pastor, minister, music, and youth directorship in a large church where I got experience like you would not believe without having to take all the responsibility for it. I baptized some 300 people in two and a half years. 
Plus, I had I don't know how many weddings and how many funerals, and I had to call 40 calls a week, plus all the music work I had to do. All that was under the tutelage of another pastor. Then I went into evangelism. And while I was in evangelism, I had an opportunity to travel with Dr. E.J. Daniels in evangelism and find out what it was like holding citywide and countywide crusades, having 50, 60, 70 churches in a crusade. And uh, then went out and did that myself. And then later on, I worked in another church where I was assistant pastor and minister of music under a pastor who had been there for 30 years. And I learned from these men. There was a time of development. I learned how they responded to situations. And I would ask them questions and learn how to respond the way God would have me to respond. Now, when he's talking about these things here, he's not speaking of physical age, by the way. He's talking about spiritual maturity. I've known some young men who have developed and grown and matured spiritually way beyond their years because they had a hunger for the things of God. My son was one of them. I believe Jeffrey really matured way beyond his years as far as spiritual knowledge was concerned and his love for the Lord was concerned. And Paul the Apostle said the same thing concerning Timothy. In, in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He is not talking about age here. He's talking about spiritually maturing in the things of the Spirit. When I first went out into the ministry in that first church in Inglewood, Colorado, here I was, uh, 23 years of age, no children, no family experience whatsoever, and I was the Sunday school teacher of the newly married couples class, and uh, some of those newly married couples people were 50 years of age. They would just gotten married. And we probably had 120 to 140 people in that one Sunday school class, and they would come and ask me for counsel. Married couples came to me and asked me for counsel. Here I was. I mean, how, what should I do with my children here? All I could say was, this is what the Word says. I had someone say to me recently, who does Bill Gothard think he is teaching about biblical principles for rearing children when he's never had one? I said, yeah, I know it. Jesus and Paul had that problem too. You don't have to have them. You just have to know, have the Holy Spirit teach you biblical principles because if it says it in the Word, it's right. And you learn biblical principles and learn how to mature. And even if you're highly gifted and, uh, and uh, otherwise qualified, you're still and not spiritually mature yet. You're still not qualified to be in leadership. Um, and they, no one should allow you to become a bishop. Now, he gives the answer here as to why. He said, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, that doesn't mean the devil's going to condemn him. What, how, was, how was Satan judged? What was his sin? Pride. And he was cast down out of heaven because of pride. And he said that if a man comes into leadership and he allows pride to get into his life, he can get thrown down in the same way. You see, God hates a proud look afar off. And very easy for young men. Now let me tell you something. When people begin to flock around young men, it's very hard for them not to begin to believe they're PR. You've lived as long as I have, and you know how many mistakes you've made and how weak you are. It's pretty hard to think too highly of, of yourself. I know, I know it, there's times when you have to be very careful. But it's so easy when you're young. When I first went in that first church and I got up and sang and I led the choir and we saw our, our young people's choir go from about 20 up to 100 and parents started coming out on Sunday nights. The church was jammed full and everything and everybody coming up and saying, oh, I had to back off and say, boy, do I need some help. Somebody pray for me around here because it's very, very hard not to listen to all that stuff and to come back and say, God, without you, nothing is possible. 
he says, when you talk about a bishop, one of the requirements is don't let some young whippersnapper get up there and take a lot of leadership because people begin to praise him and he can fall under the snare of the devil and get defeated and discouraged and uh, be judged even as Satan himself was judged. 